Okay, here we go. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm Mark, her dad. I'm a traffic homicide investigator currently working in South Florida. And welcome to You Can't Make This Shit Up. Today we're going to be covering... Hello. We're going to be covering the Baron O'Neill family murders. Baron O'Neill family murders. Okay. So this is a really, really rough one. Okay. I, I cried like 8 million times just researching it. Oh, wow. Okay. So if I cry, you're just going to have to deal with that. All right. So in March of 2018, Kenyatta Baron, who went by the, the nickname Kiki, was a 33-year-old college student. Uh, she was living in a home on Pike Lake Drive in Hillsborough County, Florida, with her long-term boyfriend, Ronnie O'Neill III. And they had two children, Ronnie Jr., who was eight years old, and Ronivia, who was nine years old. Okay. So Ronivia was born with autism, and she was nonverbal and also um, wheelchair-bound. Oh, wow. Okay. So she couldn't, she couldn't, she could communicate via a little bit of sign language, but she couldn't speak. She, she was born very premature. So it basically she didn't develop fully as a baby. So she was wheelchair okay. bound. Okay. A lot of issues for her. Right. Yeah. So during this time, it was reported that Kenyatta's boyfriend, Ronnie, because they, they weren't married. Um, okay. But he's the father of the children. Right. Right. Okay. Um, he was an aspiring rapper and a devoted member of the Nation of Islam. Okay. So do you know what the Nation of Islam is? I do. So I didn't, I, but I did. Oh, okay. I, I went down this rabbit hole of researching it because at first when I saw Nation of Islam, I, I kind of thought that it was just like, oh, you know, the, he practiced Islam. Right. But it's yeah, like, it it's like a cult. It's like a cult. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a, I mean, I don't know them. Like I haven't researched them and stuff, but they're they're a group primarily of Black or African American people who support this. You know, they they have they have an agenda, and I don't know exactly specifically what it is, so I don't want to, you know, say it and be incorrect. But like they did the um, Farrakhan, Louis Farrakhan, I think was a was a like a pastor or something. He did the Million Man March to Washington several you know many years ago and stuff. And well, so. I'm going to tell you all of their exact beliefs because I researched okay. it, and they're okay. they're pretty fucking nuts so yeah, some, would, some would say that they're like militant they're almost like a militant group or yes, they're basically and, and you'll see why as i say this they're basically a black version of the kkk oh wow okay and you'll see why this is according to the southern Pro poverty law center the nation of islam is one of the largest and best organized groups in the history of black america it was founded in Detroit in 1930 by Wallace D. Fard. And these are some of the group's core beliefs. So these are just some. I didn't write down them all, but these are some right. ones that I found interesting. Okay. So they believe that around 6,000 years ago, the Black race was blessed with paradise on Earth. This paradise was destroyed by an evil wizard named Yakub, who had created a white devil to take over the Earth. Since this time, the white devil, which is the white race has held dominion over the chosen people, which they believe to be the black race. Fard preached that an apocalypse was basically occurring in which the black population would overthrow white domination. And this apocalypse began with God's appearance on earth in the form of himself. 
So basically he was preaching that he was Jesus, basically like God's chosen right. representative on earth. Uh, okay. So typical cult shit, really. Cult, That's what uh, they exactly. all claim. They all claim they're God. Yep. So following the suppression of the white population, the nation of Islam believe that they, they themselves as a group will play a key role in educating the chosen people who remain. So basically the white population is going to be removed from the earth. And it will only be the chosen people, which they believe to be black people. And since not all black people are part of the nation of Islam, they Some believe. Gotta go too. Well, no, they, they'll stay. But it, then oh. it's the nation of Islam's job to educate them. Oh, OK. OK. But this is based solely just on color of skin, right? Right. Which is yeah. why I say it's kind of a black version of the KKK. Like, right, yeah. they, just, they hate everybody. And, and I'll, I'll keep. I'll, you'll see in further stuff, but right. they basically hate everyone who's not black. That's it. Just, well, even, makes it, just like the KKK hates everyone who's not white. So Latins, Jews, everything. Yes. Okay. So they, this is another belief. They believe intermarriage or race mixing is, should be prohibited <laughs> because okay. it's diluting the, the chosen race, which KKK, same belief, but opposite yep. race. Yeah. Thinning the blood. Yeah. So ironically though, Fard, who's the one who started the nation of Islam, he was mixed. So he was half white and half Polynesian. What? So he wasn't even truly an African-American. Right. Wow. And basically the FBI had uncovered that because obviously they're on the FBI's radar. So yeah, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, he's actually mixed. Is he but like then, the current? Is he's not the current? He's died. He's, he's but, dead. Okay. Yeah. But it's just ironic because he's sitting right. here preaching like, don't mix the races. It's like evil. Yet right. he's mixed. Yet he's mixed. Which right. kind of reminds me of like the whole Hitler thing where like, I hate the Jews, but then it turns out his mom's Jewish. Right. Yeah. And he's not even German. He was from Austria. And, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So. So the group is deeply anti-Semitic and very anti-LGBTQ. They, they believe that all white people are, are demons, basically, but that the Jews are like especially, um, yeah. especially evil. Like wow. they're the worst of all they're the like, whites. They're like demon times two or something. Yeah. <laughs> so during the, 1980, during the 1980s, the Nation of Islam, their, their leader at that time, who was Louis Far Farcon. Farrakhan. That's Farrakhan. what I was talking about. Okay. Yeah, Louis Farrakhan. He was quoted as saying that Hitler was, quote, a very great man mm -hmm. and that Judaism was, quote, a dirty religion. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this. Malcolm X was actually originally a member of the group, but upon denouncing the group and claiming that, quote, the sickness and madness of the group's racism was toxic, mm -hmm. he was assassinated by three Nation of Islam members in 1965. But the group, right. the group denied denied right. that they were involved i think i think him and farrakhan were were i don't, I don't know if they were friends or they or, were originally they were okay. like kind of co-leading the group until okay. basically their their racist like an anti-semitic stuff got so bad that malcolm right. x was like i'm out right like this is you're this isn't right go figure yeah if that doesn't tell you like how bad or or crazy that is that you know like I said, yeah, basically the nation of Islam is, is like a black version of the KKK. Right. Like they hold a lot of the same beliefs. It's just about the opposing. The opposite, race. right. Yeah, just opposite, right. So Ronnie was, uh, Ronnie Sr., because remember his son, Ronnie Jr., right. so it gets a little confusing. But he became a, a part of the nation of Islam during okay. this period. 
Okay. So reportedly that led to some issues with his and Kenyatta's relationship because Kenyatta was Christian and considered herself to be deeply religious. So in the days leading up to the murder, neighbors reported seeing and hearing the two arguing frequently. Uh, One neighbor even reported seeing Ronnie standing on the roof of a shed in his backyard, yelling obscenities at Kenyatta, who was standing on the ground. Wow. One friend of the family claimed that Ronnie began to believe that women were, quote, lower stature than men. And Ronnie Jr., he reported uh, frequently hearing his parents argue over their deferring religious beliefs in the days and weeks leading up to the murder. How old is Ronnie Jr.? Do we know? Um, like, at this at time, he's time. eight. He's eight. Okay. So, and then his sister, it was nine. So a year older. Okay. But she's the, but she has all the issues and stuff. And mm-hmm. okay. All right. Yeah. And he's, and he's not, okay. Right. He's like, not, he yeah, he doesn't have autism or, or okay. any um, physical ailments. Like he's, okay. and then also uh, Ronnie senior act actually had an older child with another woman, but she, but that child didn't live in the home because it lived with its mother. Okay. And I'm not sure if it was a son or a daughter. Okay. On the night of March 18th, 2018, at 11.43 p.m., the 911 dispatch received a call from the residence from Kenyatta. The call lasted roughly four minutes, and Kenyatta reported that she had been shot in the arm by her boyfriend and was pleading for help. Wow. Okay. So she could be heard screaming, quote, I'm shot. Help me, please. And, quote, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Ronnie. Meanwhile, the dispatcher could hear Ronnie in the background screaming, she killed me and Allah Akbar over and over before the call was ended. Oh, okay. So I actually listened to um, the 911 call, which is like hard to get through. Mm-hmm. But honestly, it's hard to even make out what she's saying because she, it's like right. so, so like loud and chaotic. It's, yeah, the, yeah the, our, the 911 call takers, that's believe it or not, it's like... Um, that's a very difficult job, A, for what they have to like listen to and, and, you know, and, and deal with, but also trying to get elicit that information from people like, you know, I've, I'm sure you've seen it and it's been very you know public and people have made jokes about it, about like when you call 911 and they're like, you know, they, they try to remain calm, but they're like, what's your name? And the person screaming, help me, ma'am, what's your, like, yeah, it, it's, they got to get certain information because they got to, re- they want to relay as much as they can to us, like to the police officers. Um, because a lot of times, you know, a lot of times we go to these calls, not knowing what's, you know, just there was a 911 hang up or, you know, the, somebody was screaming for help and the, the line went dead or something like that. So we don't, you know, we don't know what we're going into. So they try to get as much information and keep the person calm. And, you know, so, which I'm sure in this job. case, especially too, cause they, obviously she's reporting, she was shot. They right. want to make sure like, where's the shooter at so that they're right. able to tell police when they arrive, like, Absolutely. Hey, supposedly right. he's in the house or he's on the loose, sir. Exactly. Right. So yeah, the call just inexplicably ended. Okay. Um, and then six minutes later at 1149 PM, Ronnie senior, made a strange call to 911. Okay. So here's the, the actual transcript of the call. Dis- dispatcher says, 911, what's your emergency? O'Neill says, hey, I just been attacked by some white demon inside, was inside, Kiki, Kiki. Her name is Kiki. She tried to kill me. And that's it. Then the call ended. I just want to make it known that, so Kenyatta is a black female. So it's interesting that he was referring to her as a white demon because she wasn't white. Right. Which obviously to me, that also goes into his whole nation of Islam beliefs because that's what they call the, the, you know, white races, white demons. Right. But it's just interesting that he was referring to her as that. 
considering that she was, you know, in his mind from the like correct race. Right. So meanwhile, upon hearing all these loud screams and gunfire, neighbors also began calling into 911. So one neighbor called 911 and was so frightened by the sounds he he heard outside that he hid in his bathroom with, with his children until he was sure police had arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you like when just real quick, when, when I used to work the road and even today, like we'll get, we'll get a call, you know, like shots fired or whatever. And we'll, you know, we'll ask um, how many calls have you received? And usually if the dispatcher says, this is the only one. Then most of the time it turns out to be nothing or somebody did like shoot, shoot around in the air and they're gone or whatever. But when we get multiple calls, that's when like, my, my hair on my arm just stood up. Like that's when, you know, like it's, it's go time. Like, yeah, like it's for real, when there's multiple, it's coming from multiple sources. It's, it's happening. Like it's happening. So that's, you know, I just got chills again, but yeah, it's uh that's how it is. That's how it goes. <laughs> so upon arriving to the scene, Sergeant Frank Tagliarini and his fellow officers discovered Kenyatta lying face down on the sidewalk near the home. Hillsborough County Fire Rescue immediately attempted to render aid, but quickly discovered that Kenyatta was unfortunately deceased and there was nothing they could do. Meanwhile, police turned their attention to the home. So upon their arrival, I'm probably going to cry. So upon their arrival, the home was dark. However, uh, a short time later, police and fire rescue could see light emanating from the home. So as the light grew brighter, it was realized, they realized basically the house was on fire. Fearing for the safety of those who were inside, officers um, obviously forced entry into the home at that point. Right. So by this time, the entire living room was engulfed in flames. So they couldn't enter any further, but the police yelled for anyone remaining in the home to exit because the house was on fire. So at this point, Ronnie Jr. could be seen exiting the home through the garage. So the eight-year-old was covered in blood. He was quickly assessed by members of fire rescue, and it was determined that he had severe abdominal injuries, as well as burns to a large portion of his body. So while being treated, he told fire rescue that his father had killed his mother and had stabbed him. He was immediately transported via helicopter to a local medical facility where it was assumed he would succumb to his injuries. That's how bad they were. Wow. Okay. So while this was going on, a neighbor rushed over to inform the first responders that there was another child that was unaccounted for. So at this point, firefighters rushed into the home in hopes of rescuing uh, the remaining child. And firefighters found a nine-year-old Renivia in the back of the home, completely engulfed in flames. (laughs) And upon exiting the building, it was evident, along with severe burns, she had suffered severe stab wounds and was um, unfortunately pronounced dead at 12.30 a.m. Oh. While that's going on, Ronnie Sr. also exited the home through the garage. Okay. Police immediately demanded that he get on the ground, but he refused. Eventually, the police tased him and were able to take him into custody. Okay. So tell me that tasing really hurts because it would make me feel the really worst. good. <laughs> the worst thing in the world. Because you've that. been tased. Yeah, several times that the amount, whether it's five seconds or two seconds when you're it is the most excruciating pain that I've ever felt like it's weird because the minute it goes like it turns off, you're 100 percent right back to normal. There's no pain. There's no like residual. It's weird. But in that five second ride or however long, you know, the the triggers pulled, you're just an excruciating pain. And and of course, it depends. I hope it really hurt him a lot. Well, yeah, I mean. 
I, I don't know. It also depends on like the probe spread and like, you know, how far apart, you know, like how much area is being affected and, you know, so, but yeah, it's 50,000 volts of electricity transferring through your body cycling. It's like on a cycle. So it's not fun. <laughs> it's not fun at all. So I hope he felt, I hope they gave him an extra, some extra seconds. Um, um Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't there. So Dr. M. Mainland with the Hillsborough, Hillsborough County Medical Examiner's Office conducted an autopsy of both Kenyatta and Ronivia. So the cause of Kenyatta's death was determined um, to be homicidal violence due to blunt impact to the head oh. and, shock, and shotgun wounds to the torso and extremities because remember she was shot in the arm. Right. The cause of Ronivia's death was also determined to be homicidal violence due to chop blade and penetrating wounds. Okay. So here's a list of all the wounds found on her body. So this is a trigger warning wow. for okay, those so of you listening, just so you know, it's like rough. So he, so she was dead before she, she burnt, before he burnt the house down. Yes. So, cause that would have been Which, part of thank the, God. right. Exactly. Yeah. Cause so the, these are all of her wounds that were reported in the medical examiner's report. So uh, penetrating chop and blade wounds to her head, neck, torso, and foot fractures of her cervical vertebrae transection of cervical uh, spinal cord. So basically I, that means it was chopped like in half, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Severed. Yeah. Uh, perfor- perforation of her larynx fracture to her mandible, which is her jaw, right? Uh, yeah. Larynx is your throat and mandible is your jaw. Subdural and s- subacnoid hemorrhage. So bleeding of the brain, the brain, yeah. Cerebral contusion and traumatic op- axonal injury so that basically is the shearing or tearing of the brain's connecting nerve fibers and usually that happens when the brain is injured as it shifts or rotates inside of the skull correct we see that a lot like in in in, ironically traffic homicide like that's the internal injuries because the you know the body when you get into the crash the you know the car moving at 60 goes to zero the body's continuing to move at 60 but then the body stops but all the internal organ you know so it's that kind of domino effect it's that shifting or that's where like a lot of brain trauma and football hits and stuff like that uh, that's you know what what causes that concussion and you know th- those type of injuries so yeah so I, I i mean i'm assuming for her that means she was like shaken pretty hard or something yeah or yeah e- either shaken or just like thrown to the ground or some type she of was violent- supposedly she was thrown to the ground okay so some type of violent um yeah some type of violent motion or, or quick like uh like a whiplash almost yeah would be like you know your head, you know, going forward and then stopping. And then the brain naturally, in, in this case, I don't know if it was twisting, but actually hitting the skull and, and moving around, but enough force that it started to tear all those, you know, that membrane and stuff that connects it to, you know. And then her last injury was full, full thickness burns to total body surface area. So she was burned like was, right, right. Her whole body, right. Her whole body was, was caught in the fire, you know, but it, it didn't say anything about smoke inhalation or anything like that, which, which is, you know, that's the indicator that the person was, you know, when a person dies in a fire by smoke inhalation or whatever. So the lungs had stopped working prior, prior to the fire, but she did burn. So, you know, so I'm in, in, in good news, Ronnie jr. Actually was treated for his wounds and survived. However, he faced an excruciating and slow recovery because he'd suffered multiple stab wounds to his neck, abdomen, chest, and extremities. Oh God. And he'd suffered burns to over 30% of his body. A poor kid. 
So obviously following Ronnie Sr.'s arrest, his parental rights were terminated. Um, <laughs> and Ronnie was placed into the temporary custody of family members. However, his welfare was still being overseen by Child Protective Services because of all his injuries. Of course, yeah. So the night of the attack, a homicide detective who was not assigned to the case, um, his name was Detective Mike Blair. He was called to the scene just to deliver a few items to the acting detective. But by the time Detective Blair had arrived, Ronnie Jr. had actually already been medevaced to Tampa General Hospital. And at that time, he was that was when he was unexpected to live. Right. OK. So they didn't actually meet that night. The detective Ronnie Blair right. and, and or, I'm sorry, Detective Mike Blair right. and Ronnie Jr. didn't meet. Detective Blair was so emotionally affected by the scene of the crime that when it was discovered that Ronnie Jr. would survive, he reached out to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and had them donate a lot of items because I guess Ronnie had reportedly told first responders that he loved football and was a big fan of the team. Yeah, because yeah, that's Tampa, the Tampa or Hillsborough County. Tampa. Uh, so Detective Blair went to the hospital to deliver the gifts to Ronnie and ended up spending several hours with him in his hospital room. Detective Blair began visiting Ronnie regularly. And one night as Blair was leaving, Ronnie held onto his hand and asked the detective um, to watch a movie with him. Detective Blair had to return to work at that at that moment, but he promised Ronnie that he would return that night to watch a movie with him. So once he got into his car, he immediately called his wife, Danielle. And said, although they were supposed to actually go on a date that night, he asked her to come with him instead to visit Ronnie and watch a movie. And his wife agreed. So upon meeting Ronnie that night and watching the movie, Danielle immediately wanted to foster Ronnie and take him home with them. Awesome. So several days later, the Blairs met with Ronnie's court-appointed guardian at the hospital. And Detective Blair told the guardian that he was interested in helping Ronnie in any way he could and requested that the guardian call him should Ronnie need anything at all. Shortly after that, a few days later, Detective Blair received a phone call during which the guardian asked if he knew of anyone who'd be willing to foster Ronnie and take him to his many medical appointments, because obviously that was going to be a big yeah, issue because wow. of all his injuries. Right. So it had to be someone who had the time to do that. Right. So after speaking to his wife and they, their five children, they already had five children of their own. They all encouraged him to foster Ronnie. So Detective Blair agreed and Ronnie Jr. was sent to live with his new family. On uh, November 25th, 2019, the Blairs officially adopted Ronnie, who is now legally Ronnie Blair. Awesome. However, in 2018, while Ronnie was recovering in the hospital still, his biological father, Ronnie Sr., was charged with the commission of seven crimes. So he was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, mm -hmm. one count of attempted first-degree murder, okay. one count of arson, two counts of aggravated child abuse, and one count of resisting an officer without violence. Okay. It was quickly determined that Ronnie Sr. was mentally incompetent to stand trial. Ugh. The okay. judge ordered that he be sent to a state mental health facility to be closely monitored until it was decided by doctors that he was competent enough to stand trial. So that would take three years. Okay. Following Ronnie's arrest, he was placed into a state mental hospital and those doctors immediately determined that he was indeed not mentally competent. His mental health records, as far as an official diagnosis, have not been released publicly because that was something I wanted to look for in my research. Right. I was like, okay, but clearly he had to have some sort of diagnosis for him to be like, did right. he have schizophrenia? Did he have like some sort of something? But they've never said released it publicly. Right. Okay. But he had some sort of mental illness. Okay. However, he underwent psychological treatment for six months. And in oh. May of 2019, Ronnie was sent back to jail as psychologists determined he no longer met the requirements for involuntary psychological treatment. 
So basically, they couldn't hold him against his will in the mental hospital anymore. Right. Right. So they're right there. So they incarcerate him. So at this point, three separate mental health experts determined that he was now competent to stand trial. Okay. This is something that happened pre-trial. So in October, in October, it was the 28th of October, 2020, Ronnie filed, and I found this, the actual legal docu- document online. So right. the, uh, it was kind of cool to read it. Right. Um, Ronnie filed an amended motion to dismiss count one of the indictment based upon statutory immunity pursuant to Florida statute 776.032. So within this motion, Ronnie was requesting the court to enter an order, quote, declaring him immune from criminal prosecution regarding count one in this cause. So count one being first degree murder of Kenyatta Barron. And this was his reasoning. Because, quote, his actions were necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself and or his children. And they were necessary to prevent Kenyatta Barron from committing a a forcible felony, aggravated battery, felony battery, an attempted murder against him and or his children, end quote. He also alleged that, quote, the circumstances leading to the death of Kenyatta Barron on March 18th, 2018, occurred after she attacked Mr. O'Neill in the home they were both living in at the time, end quote. So basically, he was trying to get the murder charges dropped by alleging that Kenyatta had, in fact, attacked him and and the children. And in order to protect them, he had no choice but to kill her. Right. Right. (laughs) So in the state of Florida, when a defendant alleges what is called, which I hope I'm pronouncing this right, you may be more familiar with with it than me, but what's called prima facie claim? Prima facie. Okay. Or prima facie. What is called a prima facie claim of self-defense, the burden then shifts to the state to prove to the court through, quote, clear and convincing evidence Mm -hmm. that the defendant is not entitled to immunity due to self-defense. So basically, it fell to the state to prove that he was not in fact acting in self-defense. Correct. So on December 3rd, 2020, the state called three witnesses to refute Ronnie's claim of self-defense. They called James Gray Jr., whose fiance lived next door to Ronnie and Kenyatta, and he was a witness to the crime that night. Mr. Gray testified that he and his fiance had heard loud screaming and then a loud banging on the front door. Gray told his fiance and her daughter to remain inside and to call 911 while he opened the front door to see what was going on. Upon opening the door, he saw two people at the end of a six to eight foot long outdoor foyer and immediately noticed blood splattered along the walls. He noticed a black female laying face down on the ground and a black male standing over her holding the female's left arm. The male was also holding an item in his right hand, but Gray could not clearly see what it was at the time. The female, however, was lying completely unresponsive. And upon seeing him, the male began shouting, you don't understand. Gray began shouting at the male to back away from the woman. It was at this point that Gray recognized the man as his fiance's next door neighbor, Ronnie O'Neill, as the two had met previously. He then realized that the female on the ground was Kenyatta Barron. Ronnie refused to back away from Kenyatta and instead continued to yell, you don't understand, she killed me, and Allah Akbar over and over. Finally, Ronnie dropped Kenyatta's arm and ran back to his home. Gray ran to Kenyatta, but she still remained unresponsive. He realized she was deceased and in an effort to to reserve her dignity, as she was dressed in only a tank top and underwear and socks, Gray covered her body with a sheet. He stayed with her body until police arrived. Wow. Yeah. 
So next, the state called Hillsborough County Sheriff Thomas Dirks to the stand. He testified that when he arrived to the scene, he observed Kenyatta's body on the ground covered by a sheet. Upon examining the body, it was evident that she had a gunshot wound to her arm and had been beaten on her face and body. He also discovered pieces of a shotgun around Kenyatta's body, including the barrel and wooden stock of the gun. It was clear the shotgun had been used to both shoot and then beat Kenyatta to death. Oh, my God. The state then called their final witness, the medical examiner, Dr. Mary Mainland, who testified to all of Kenyatta's injuries, which were pretty extensive. Right. So she suffered a she she suffered a gunshot wound to her right back shoulder and another larger gunshot wound to her right elbow. As a result of the gunshots, Kenyatta's arm had been broken in two separate places. However, the gunshot wounds were not what killed Kenyatta. Dr. Mainland testified that Kenyatta had suffered repeated injuries to her head, which included over 15 lacerations and numerous contusions and abrasions to the left side of her head. Her skull had been fractured seven times, including a fracture of her jaw. Kenyatta had been struck so hard that several of her teeth had been knocked out. It was this brutal beating that had resulted in Kenyatta's death, and her ultimate cause of death was brain hemorrhaging as a result of blunt force trauma. Yeah, bashed her head in. It was also determined through reviewing the 911 call evidence that Kenyatta had died only four and a half minutes after calling 911 for help. Wow. After placing the call, she attempted to run to the neighbors for assistance, where Ronnie followed her and ultimately beat her to death with the shotgun. Was she beaten outside? Do we know? Like, that's where she, where she was she lying was, is where she he was shot um, once inside the home right. and then once while she was running away. Okay. And then beaten. And then, to death. And then literally where they found her is where she was beaten. Okay. So it was outside the house. Okay. He had beaten her so hard that the shotgun's barrel was bent. Wow. It was then that Ronnie retreated to his, co- to his home and called 911 himself, attempting to lay the foundation for a claim of self-defense by alleging Kenyatta had, in fact, been the one attacking him. So that was the call where he was calling her a white devil white and devil she tried to kill me. And Yeah. <laughs> so following this hearing, the court found, quote, the state sufficiently proved the defendant was not in danger of imminent death or great bodily harm during the incident that occurred on the evening of March 18th, 2018. That immediately preceded the death of Miss Barron. Consequently, the court finds that the defendant is not entitled to relief. End quote. Yep. So basically they said, nah, this wasn't self-defense. So yeah, almost all murder charges that they always try to they always plead that motion initially. They always, you know, generally the uh the subjects will will try to do that again to get the state to have to 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 prove, you know, the burden falls on the state to you know, to prove that it wasn't a self-defense claim, you know, that, um, that his actions were solely his and, you know, like he was in the uh, primary aggressor or the instigator, however, you know, however you want to say it. So that's, that's common. I mean, that happens quite often um, with, with, with murder cases. So, so we're going to end part one here because the next part is going to be all about the actual trial, which okay. is nuts. Um, We get a lot more information in the trial about what happened inside the home. It's crazy because this is so recent. You can literally watch all of the court footage. So I literally found like direct quotes of like what went on in court. Wow. Okay. So you get to hear it right now, but everybody else is going to have to wait. (laughs) (laughs) So tune in for part two. Come on back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye.